Amen. Thank you, choir. Good morning again, Redeemer. Let's pray together, and uh, we'll jump in God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, uh, what a great reminder that you are more than enough for us. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you're kind to us, and our eyes and hearts cannot imagine or even comprehend all of your excellencies, and you will give us eternity to behold you and to know you and to walk with you. And so uh, implant that hope in our hearts and help us, Lord, to walk rightly, even when we don't understand what's going on and can make sense of the world. Father, I pray now that as we read and look at your word that you would indeed uh, encourage our hearts. Remind us once again, Lord, that our final enemy, namely death, has been conquered by King Jesus. And this means everything. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to uh, look at 1 Corinthians 15. I've asked Zach, who's already read verses 1 through 11, and I'll pick up and read verses 12 through 28. And I, I want us to think along these lines of Jesus or Christ has conquered our final enemy and it's death. Read with me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Amen. So, um, as mentioned, this is the last time, uh, Lord willing, that I'll be able to be in the pulpit uh, bringing God's Word to you before our sabbatical begins. And um, I want to say thank you to our, our elders. Also, thank you to our staff as we have delegated all of my duties to other staff members. We have an amazing team, and uh, they're going to take great care of you. And also be praying for the slate of men that will be in our pulpit 
It's on the last document in your bulletin. We've intentionally uh, had brothers from around the country who share a mission and vision of Redeemer to be in the pulpit in the way that we've designed it. Every first and third Sunday, Brian or Zach will be preaching and they will be administering the sacraments to you. And second, uh, fourth and fifth Sundays, you have guest preachers uh, coming. So please be praying for all of these men. Um, but this being my last Sunday before sabbatical, it, it forced me a couple weeks ago to, to say, hey, what are you going to preach, right? Um, what, are, what are some last things that I want to say to you before a season of rest? And the rule keeper in me would have said, hey, just preach what's next. That's 1 Corinthians 15, I mean 14, so I'm skipping that, but here's why we skipped it. It's because... Um, Two reasons. One is external and one is internal. There's a man by the name of Pastor Thomas McKenzie, and he was a pastor in Nashville, and he planted the Church of the Redeemer. It's an Anglican church, and he faithfully pastored the church, and he was given a sabbatical. And his plan for his sabbatical was to drive his oldest child to college and then to fly to Spain and to hike for his 50th birthday, and then to fly his wife from Nashville to England where they would meet and have some time together. He preached his last Sunday before a sabbatical began and got on the car on Monday to drive his child to school, and they were both tragically killed in an auto accident. And he got his final sabbatical. He got to enter into the rest of Jesus forever. And that was his last sabbatical. And so that's, that's kind of on my mind. But as I was building out the sabbatical, I used a lot of different resources. And one of the resources hit me like a weight of bricks. And it asked me this question. Hughes, whose funeral will you come back to preach? And whose funeral do you want to know about? And in my mind, I just kind of thought that when pastor goes on a sabbatical, death just kind of stops, right? Nobody's going to die. Nobody's going to have a heart attack. Nobody's going to have a car accident. Nobody's going to die of violence. Nobody's going to have a stroke. And it kind of hit me that not only might this be my last time preaching ever, this might be your last time hearing. And it hit me like, what, what's the last thing that you want your hearers to hear. And it's the case that Paul has been building up to in the whole book of 1 Corinthians. He said, I delivered unto you that which was of chief importance. And so when you think about the whole book of 1 Corinthians, what Paul is saying is what, what is of absolute most importance is the gospel and how the gospel addresses the last enemy of death. You see, James tells us, he says, brothers and sisters, come, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. 
He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so I'm trying to lean into that tension of, of making plans, plans to rest, plans to not do things, plans to do things, and plans for you, right? I'm, we're making these plans, but James says that, look, brother or sister, at any moment, your, your life is a vapor. It's a mist. And what you plan tomorrow and next month and, and next month after that, it, it may not happen. And so if the Lord does not bring me back here alive, and if this is the last thing you hear, then it's this. If death should separate us, what you must remember is that death has been defeated in Jesus. He's conquered your final enemy. And Paul saves this for the last thing. It's like he's saving the best for last. And so I want to look into that this morning. I want us to think about death as an enemy and how it torments us. And I want us to think through like the logic or the illogic of assuming or forgetting that there will be a bodily resurrection. And then I want us to look at the evidence. Paul really does give us, he, he says facts. He says, but in fact, Jesus has been raised. He gives us facts. And then he talks about Jesus' death, not only as something factual, but he says it's first fruit, which is also important. And then he lands a plane by saying, look, knowing that Jesus has defeated death has implications for you now, right here and now. And so the first thing I want us to think about really is death is an evil enemy that disorients and torments us all. That's the first thing. Death is an evil enemy that disorients and torments us all. Here's the thing about death. It is irrespective of your gender. It does not care about your money, how you vote, where you live, where you went to school, if you're married, if you're single, if you appear to be healthy, if you diet and do keto and eat green, and if you love meat. Like, like death is just laughing. Like, I don't care. Like, I'm, I'm coming for every one of you. And so notice that Paul calls death an enemy in verse 25. And I don't know about you, but have you ever had enemies? And I, I don't mean like a somebody who doesn't like you for a day and then y'all hurt each other's feelings and then you make up and you're friends again. I mean like a real enemy, someone who detests you and loathes you and hates you and come after you, right? Like I have had a few. And here's the thing that, that you don't have to have had enemies. I think movies and books do a great job at, at showing us what it means to have an enemy. You've seen like scary movies or you've seen these movies where people are hunting people down and you've seen these revenge movies. And here's the thing about, about enemies, at least on the movie, they make us miserable. That if we're bullied, we take a different way home. They scare us. They, they move us to live in fear. That our heart rates, they rise in their presence, that we're looking over our shoulders, that they want to do us harm. 
And what Paul is saying is that if earthly enemies or enemies on the TV screen evoke these types of feelings, then how much more does death? You guys, death is awful. Have you heard someone with labored breathing and that deathly sound of the rattling of their rib cages, right? Have you heard the mourners wail where it sucks the life out of you? John O., who's going to be preaching in a few weeks, he says the first time he had to deliver the bad news to a friend that his brother had been murdered, he says, my friend ran away from me as if he could outrun the news that I just told him. Death destroys families. Death moves us to grief and sorrow and sadness. That death hurts us. It disorients us. It deceives us by having us think that we are guaranteed to live to be 80 or 90. And like that, death comes and some of us aren't ready. You see, death works a number on us. It is an enemy. And what you see in this passage is that it had worked a number on them so much so that some were actually given over to say, you know what? There is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. It's not going to happen. It can't happen. It's scientifically impossible. We've never seen any single person walk, right? We've never seen someone have a funeral and, re- and remain dead. And then two, three months later, we see this person again. Death looks like a period. It looks like it's final. And the message that Paul is pushing is it's not final. It's a comma, not a period, right? But death was making some of them upset the faith of others by moving them to say there is no such thing as the resurrection of the body. Now, one scholar, uh, he says the issue here is not an objection to a future resurrection, but that it will be a bodily resurrection. Some of the Corinthians were so spiritual that they found the notion of a resurrection of the body something crass. The phrase resurrection of the dead literally means the rising of corpses. For the spiritually refined Corinthians, this was not the stuff of Christian hope. It was the scenario of a horror story. And this makes sense when you read back on the letter why some did any and everything with their bodies. God made the body. God made the stomach. God made the food. He's going to do away with them all. And so some in Corinth were actually embracing the lie that these bodies don't matter and that the key to spirituality was leaving this body and becoming this non-embodied spirit, and therefore they're sleeping with prostitutes. Therefore, they're doing all these gross, immoral things with the body because they didn't think the body mattered. And what Paul is saying is you're wrong. Like the body does matter. What you do with your body, it was made for the Lord and the same body you inhabit right now, though it dies, that same body will be raised. And what some of them were saying, because I think of grief, because of what they saw with their eyes and didn't see, and the thinking of the day that there is no such thing as bodily resurrection. And grief can do that to us and death can do it to us. It can make us look at this truth as foolish. When has death brought you harm and hardship? It disorients and torments us all. Which moves us to our second point. 
Paul is entertaining the idea that if you say that there is no bodily resurrection, do you really know what, you, what that means? Which is our second point. Denying the bodily resurrection is dangerous. And we're seeing that in verses 12 through 19. Now, earlier in the letter, Paul likened himself to their father. And you're my children. And so what he's doing here, I think, is putting on his parent hat. If you've raised kids, then you know that, that sometimes children will go down these paths where they just don't make wise decisions. And sometimes they, they, they just kind of get on that path where, whether it's friends or habits or thinking or the way that they live, it's just unwise. And here is what, pa- parents are really invaluable, right? The prefrontal cortex of our children, it's underdeveloped. And it's the part of their brains that, that help them make sense of cause and effect, that, that this action brings about this reaction. And so what God does by putting parents around who are mature, both in the Lord and mature physiologically, we're able to forecast like, hey, if you do this, then it leads to that. And, and, and if you do that, it leads to that. That, that. That's what Paul is doing here. He's putting on his spiritual parent hat and he's saying, hey, let me entertain what you're saying. If you deny the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, let me as a parent and as a father show you where this goes. And so when you read his language in verses 12 through 19, he uses this if-then logic. If this is true, then this is true. And if this is true, then this is true. And if this is not true, then this is not true. That is parental logic, right? And so notice what Paul says. In verse 13, if there is no such thing as bodily resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He says that in 13 and 16. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, you hear you hear that? So what's the content of Paul's preaching? If he's saying that if you deny the bodily resurrection in general, and then you deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus more specifically, what we preach to you, it it means nothing. Now, here's the the question. What is the, 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 the message of Paul's gospel? Here's how I think we understand the gospel in America today. We understand it as Jesus came, Jesus lived, and Jesus died for your sins. Like th- that's kind of the reduced nature of the gospel. If you ask someone to, to share their faith, that's kind of what we're going to say. Now, Paul's gospel is more expansive than that. In fact, Paul says, I delivered to you what I received. So this means to me that, that amongst the apostles and amongst first century Christians, the, the, the nature of their gospel was fourfold. And so notice what Paul says, I delivered unto you that which was of most importance, the gospel that that I preached in verse one, where there were four aspects. One, Jesus lived, right? And Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's number one. Number two, Christ was buried. Number three, Christ was raised according to the scriptures on the third day. And number four, and this is the part that I think we leave out of our American gospel. That not only did he, was he raised, but he appeared to many. 
In other words, he just didn't get up from the cross and then says, okay, check me out. I'll see y'all later. No, it says that Jesus lingered for a while. He ate food for a while. He showed himself for a while so that people would see him in the flesh alive. And what Paul is saying is the gospel involves all of that. And if you say there is no resurrection from the dead, you're saying Jesus did not, was not raised, then what you're undermining is the gospel itself. You catch what Paul is saying? It's that serious. And if Jesus has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are bearing false witness of God because we testify that God raised him from the dead. And if God and Christ has not been raised, then guess what? You're still dead in your sins. Why? Because his atoning death is God's way of putting his sins upon your sins, upon him. That is sin payment. But sin acceptance and vindication, that comes in his resurrection. That God is saying he's vindicated, he's covered, his payment is paid in full, you are now guilt free. And so Paul is saying if you deny the bodily resurrection, then guess what? You're still dead in your sins. And he goes on to say, not only that, those that have died, that you love, that they have perished forever. David and Moses and Abraham and Nehemiah and Esther and Ruth and Naomi and Job and Joseph, they're, they're, they're gone. And the believers that have died in Christ in your church, they're gone. And your children that have died, they're gone. And your mother, she is gone. And you'll, you'll never ever be reunited around the throne of Jesus. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we only have hope in this life. And Paul just told them, look, y'all aren't the flashy people. Y'all aren't of noble birth. <laughs> Some of y'all are slaves. That you've endured persecution. That if this life is all there is, we're to be pitied. C.S. Lewis says that wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets his death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. And here's what their thinking is saying. If you don't think there is resurrection from the dead, then Aslan isn't returning. And if he isn't returning, you never have spring and if you never have spring, your life will always be a living hell. That's what Paul is getting at. And in verse 32, if this is the case, let us just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's anarchy. Can you imagine a world where there was no kernel of common grace, no kernel of truth, moving us to desire the righting of what's wrong, the giving back of what the fall is taking, the being placed in the very presence of God, to being made anew. Can you imagine a world where that is lost? That's a nightmare, family. So when we were, our kids were younger, we loved to play Jenga. 
and I owe my son some money because I'm putting his likeness on the screen. <laughs> but we love to play Jenga. And if you've played Jenga, then you know the, the, how the game goes. You put these blocks together, you stack them up, and you go around the room, and each person has to pull a block. And the loser is the person who pulls the wrong block where everything comes crashing down. And so this is a three-year-old version of my son. And if you look closely where his eye is focused on, it's focused on that one little block at the bottom. The one little block, because as a three-year-old, he even comprehends that, Daddy, if I move this one block, this game is over and everything comes crashing down. And that is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, hey, be like a child and just see that you can tinker with a lot of stuff, but if you start tinkering with the resurrection from the dead, then life is meaningless. It's nothing. Every single thing collapses. Thank you, Greg. Paul, as a good gospel parent, is saying, this ain't what you want. This ain't what you want. And then Paul pivots, right? He moves to the third point, which I think is is a case that he's making that Jesus's bodily resurrection is a fact and a first fruit. And you got to get them both. Now, let me show you. Look at verse 20. Look at how it starts. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So no sermon I mean, no, no sermon gymnastics. It's like right there in the text. But in fact, but then also notice what he says about first fruits in the same sentence. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's also the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Right. So fact and first fruits. Now, having dealt with their warped reality, in exploring what life would be like if there is no resurrection, Paul pivots and says, look, let me give you facts. And I want to be really careful here. Facts do not make you a believer. The Holy Spirit opens your eyes to a logical and very factual and historical account of God's mission to redeem the world that he created. But just by having facts does not make one a Christian that it takes the Holy Spirit breathing life into us that we can see. And so Paul is doing that. He's saying, look, you are in the spirit and let me help you see the factual nature of Jesus's resurrection. I think this is courtroom language. And you can see what Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then we are found to be misrepresenting God. That word means false witness. We're bearing false witness under oath. Because we testified, that's word number two, that God raised him from the dead. And so I think what Paul is doing in this section, 20 through 28, is he's taking them to court. Y'all take each other to court in Corinth. Now let me take you to court. And, and the thing that we're putting on trial is the resurrection of Jesus. You like suing people? You like going to court? Let me take you to court. And so what Paul is doing is giving evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence pointing to the truthfulness, the factual nature of the resurrection. Now, notice what Paul says. He actually says, verse three, I deliver to you as of first importance what I receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Right? Verse four, he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures 
That's his first piece of factual evidence. Now, what were Paul's scriptures? The New Testament was still being written when he wrote 1 Corinthians. And so his scriptures had to have been the Old Testament. Now, what passages does Paul have in mind in the Old Testament that testify that Messiah would come, Messiah would live, Messiah would die, not for his sins, but ours. Messiah would be buried. Messiah would be raised on the third day. Like, like what scriptures does Paul have in mind? And I love that he's vague, but there's a clue here. Notice who he talks about in verse 23 or verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. And so one of the scriptures that, that Paul is appealing to is the book of Genesis. And he's actually saying Adam was a real historical figure who walked the earth. And go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and what happened Adam and Eve transgressed and they fell and they died. But God promised Eve that I will send a son born of a woman, born from you, who will redeem them and who will crush the head of a serpent. And so when Paul looks at Jesus, he looks at Jesus as the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis that went back thousands of years. He could also have his mind on numbers. When the serpent was lifted up and as the people of Israel look at the serpent, they were healed. He could have Jonah in his mind as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And then he was spit out. That, that could it be that Jonah was pointing us to Messiah who would go into the bowels of the earth and, and rise out triumphant? Could it be Isaiah 53 that we all like sheep go astray, each of us in our own ways, but God laid our sins on him? See, what Paul is doing is saying, Your Honor, I can take you back thousands of years. These prophets who wrote these promises, and they were all about Messiah. Fact number one. Fact number two are eyewitnesses. Now, there's something interesting here. You will not notice a woman on this list. He says, He appeared to Cephas, the same Cephas that some of you say you follow. And then he appeared to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers. And then he appeared to James. And then me. Did you notice that there are no women in this account? Even though the gospel tells us the women were the first to see Jesus. There were four Marys who saw Jesus. And there was Joanna and there was Salome. So why in the world does Paul omit the women right here? It's, here's the key. All right, this next slide, Greg. All right, so Athens and Corinth were six, around 70, 65, 70 miles away. And Athens really is the epicenter. It is sort of like a, a, a New York or a D.C., right? It, it is the epicenter, and it shapes what's happening kind of around it. And here's what we know about Athenian law, law in Athens. One... That, that smaller trials required jury numbers to be 201 or less, or less. Really weighty trials, they required 501 jurors. And in Athens, a woman could not be on the jury. And so one scholar says what Paul is doing 
is actually building a case and he's actually saying, Your Honor, I summon 500 plus people who can all bear witness from Cephas to the 12 to the other apostles to James. And James is probably dead right now. But 500 whom Paul says is still alive. This is Paul's way of saying, Your Honor, take us to court. And the evidence will be overwhelming in our favor. We got this many people to testify. Thank you, Greg. And then Paul's final piece of evidence is himself. He says, Your Honor, I will put myself on the stand as one untimely born or, or as one that was prematurely born or some translations as an abortive child. God had mercy on me. I was a persecutor of the church. And what changed me? It was I saw Jesus. I saw him with my own eyes and I was blinded by his glory until he gave me sight again. He is alive. And beloved, this isn't here just for them. It's here as evidence for you. Our faith is certain. The burden of proof are on those who deny it. What Paul is actually saying is there is evidence upon evidence that he's alive. He was raised. But it's not just fact, right? It's first fruit. And if you love the Old Testament, this ought to make your heart sing. What are first fruits, right? What is that about? I'd encourage you to go read Leviticus 23 and go read Exodus 23. First fruit was one of the seven feasts of Israel. You had Passover, the unleavened bread, first fruits, feast of weeks, feast of trumpets, day of atonement, and feast of booths. And here's what we, we believe. We believe that the first feast, Passover, was fulfilled in Jesus. He is our Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Check, right? We believe, right, in the feast of the unleavened bread. And it, it, it drew our attention to the night where they could not eat bread with leaven in it. They, they got rid of everything and they left in haste. And isn't that also fulfilled in Jesus? Because Jesus has cleansed us and pardoned us. We are now a new lump. We're clean. We're, there is no leaven in us anymore. And when he redeemed us, we, exod, we exodust the darkness quickly because he called us out. But here's the thing. First fruit is also fulfilled in Jesus. And what was the feast of the first fruit? It sounds exactly like it sounds that Israel would plant their crops. And the first crop that broke the ground that matured the fastest was barley. And they would take the barley and the sheaves of barley and walk it over to the priest and make an offering and the priest would wave it and in their bringing it they were trusting that God you gave us we planted and we watered but you made it grow and it was also a promise that what I've given you now at right now this first portion that there is more coming there is more coming later in the harvest and what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the first fruit 
He is the first one to break out of the grave, the first one to conquer over hell and conquer death and to be living again in a glorified body. But it's the first fruit, because guess who's going to be coming later? Guess who's coming later with real bodily resurrections? You. If you name the name of Jesus. It's fact and it's first fruit, which moves us to our last point. His bodily resurrection changes you now. It gives you boldness, security, comfort, and hope right now. Beloved, you are invincible. And I mean that in all the ways that you See it in movies. You're invincible. You're indestructible. Fear not the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and cast thy soul into hell. And the one that you have bowed the knee to, what he tells you is, I will never lose you. I will never, ever, ever lose you. But I will raise you up on the last day. And when you die, to be absent from that body is to be immediately brought into my presence. And when I return, I'm picking up your body and I'm going to glorify it and unite your soul and body to be with me forever. You are indestructible. Not cancer. Not car accidents. Not murder. Not malaria. Not HIV or hypothermia. Not heart attacks nor heat strokes can separate you from the love of God in Christ. The second thing, you can live with boldness now. I love what Paul says. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me when he revealed himself to me is not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than all of them, though not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So Paul is saying that when I saw Jesus, it gave me boldness. He gave me stamina. He gave me energy. So much so. Look at what he says in verse 32. What do I gain, humanly speaking? I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not right raised. What Paul is saying is, do you know how bold I became? Y'all can't kill me in Ephesus, and you can't kill me in Rome. I will live forever. This gives us boldness right now to be on mission and fearless for the kingdom. It also means that your body will be transformed. I don't know about you, but my body is aging. I go run three miles now, and now my right knee swells up, right? Anybody got that going on? I'm like, what happened? This didn't happen like five years ago. What's going on? We're aging. Our bodies are betraying us, and we get sick, and we get cancer, and we lose our hair, we lose our teeth, our bones get brittle, we get out of shape, we don't have stamina, our knees hurt, our legs hurt, our minds, it plays tricks on us, we're depressed, we're confused, we're forgetting things, 
Do you know what the gospel says to you? <laughs> that one day this body of death that you carry around right now, not a new body, but this same body will be glorified. And you won't be depressed anymore. And you won't have high blood pressure. And you won't struggle with your weight. And your legs won't hurt. And you won't be struck with blindness or the loss of hearing. That these same bodies right now, those bodies, will be glorified. I love Sam Alberry's book. Here's what he writes. It's, it's in our reflection quote. God cares about your body, this body, not a new one, but the one you're in right now. Jesus' incarnation is the highest compliment. He made billions of bodies, but he made one for Jesus. And as we age, aging is no longer a threat, but a promise. Aging does not speak of a past that I can't recover, but of a future I can barely conceive. The real glory days for us are ahead. The poet George Herbert said it best, death used to be an executioner, but the, guard, the gospel makes him a gardener. You don't bury a Christian, you plant him, and one day he or she will arise in perfected physical glory. And because his resurrection is real, those that you miss who died in Jesus, they're not dead. They're before his throne, and you will be with them and Jesus forever and ever and ever. This is what Paul wants them to know, and this is what I want you to rest in. Your final enemy, death, has been defeated. May you believe it. May you rest in it, and may you marvel in the one who defeated your highest enemy. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you, and we thank you for your conquering power. And as we turn our hearts to sing a song that we normally sing at Advent, Father, we are waiting for the final Advent. We're waiting for the shadows to flee and death's grip to be loosened. And so we sing it in faith, looking forward to the day that this is a reality. We bless you and we love you. Amen.